0: I hope that you understood from the message two weeks ago, and especially the message last week, that Paul has begun to, to bring his first letter to Timothy to a close. And last week when Brian taught us uh, verses 3 to 5, he talked about one of the heaviest phrases in First Timothy. It was right there at the end of verse 2 or the beginning of verse 3, depending on where you see the connection. It's that phrase, these are the things that you are to teach and insist on. And I have to say that part of me is really glad that Paul wrote those words, but I also have to say that, that part of me recoils when I read those words. I always read those first words with a smile because these are the things you are to teach. Uh, for me, it's like saying it's sick them to a bulldog. You know, go Jay, go, get them, get, teach it. I say that because we've been reading a personal letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, his son in the faith. It's a very intimate letter. And usually, personal letters are supposed to be, well, personal. I mean, sometimes we write an open letter to a newspaper or, or, or a magazine, and we expect that anyone and everyone will have the opportunity to read what we've said. But unless you're a social media enthusiast, you usually don't want your personal thoughts to be shared publicly. So Paul wrote a personal letter to Timothy, his son in the faith, and we would not have expected to see what Paul wrote to Timothy uh, to someone that was that close to him. We, we, wouldn't have been able, we wouldn't have expected to be able to read the words that he wrote to Timothy had Paul not put in those words, teach other people this stuff that I put in this letter. And there'll be a similar encouragement to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And the things you've heard me say, Paul wrote, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. As we've often noted, Paul wrote things to Timothy, and he said things to Timothy, and Paul wanted Timothy to pass those same things along to other people, especially other people who would then be able to pass them along to others. And that is what gives Brian and me the permission to teach the things that Paul wrote in this personal letter. When Paul said that, that's all the permission that we needed. And as I mentioned earlier, that makes me smile. But earlier when I was talking about that phrase, these are the things you were to teach and insist on, I said that part of that phrase made me smile, but I recoil at the other part of that phrase. I don't smile, I grimace just a little bit. And it's the second half of that phrase, as you can see up on the, on the screen there, it's the second half of that phrase that makes me grimace. The part where Paul says that Brian and I are supposed to insist that people accept and believe what Paul said. And I grimace at that because of the confusion that can happen when someone is standing behind the pulpit insisting on something. Because when either Brian or I stand up here and insist, it would be easy for some of you to hear us saying, hey, it's my way or the highway. Just, if you don't believe this, then get out. Get off the bus. We'll run over you later. That's the, that's the attitude that you may be picking up. I hope that's never the attitude that I'm conveying, but I would never want you to think that you can't disagree with me. So I'm always hesitant to insist, and I know that Brian would say the same thing, but the problem with my not wanting to insist is that Paul is very clear when he says that not only are we to teach the truths that are found in 1 Timothy, we're also supposed to insist that you listen to, hear, believe, and obey what we teach. This is where I want to stop and say something about Brian. He's not here this morning, so I can talk about him behind his back. Don't tell him that I said this, but I'm happy to be able to share the pulpit with him because He's a man who is very careful, very careful to take the time to do the work that's necessary to discover and understand the truth from God's word, what God's word is saying. And I know from long experience that Brian will never say, well, this is what God's word says, but what it really means is this other thing over here. So we would never say, this is what God's Word says here, but what He really means is. We, we've agreed together that we hold that policy. We will not do that. Instead, we will always say, this is what God's, wor- God's Word says, this is what God says, and you can be sure that God means what He says, which makes it possible for us to insist as long as we're teaching God's Word, taking the time to be careful to teach, to learn the truth before we start talking about it. So sometimes you're going to hear us insisting that you listen to, hear, believe, and obey what we teach, but not in the sense of, hey, it's my way or the highway. Instead, when you hear us insisting, it's because we've spent hours prior to the message taking the time to learn and understand what God is saying in a particular passage. And I'm old enough to know and experienced enough to be able to say to you that I have never ignored God's advice or disobeyed God's word and had it turn out well. Never. And I don't mean to say that God has punished me over the years, but because it's still true that, Christ, that, that God punished Jesus in my place, I only mean to say that God, God has several things figured out. <laughs> Theologically, we would say that God has a whole bunch of things figured out. And and so when God shares his perspective on a particular thing, I'm inclined to believe that his perspective is reliable. And when God gives his advice on a certain thing, I'm inclined to believe that his advice is dependable. You can count on it. In fact, when God shares his perspective or gives his advice, I'm inclined to believe that he's entirely trustworthy. And that means that even at my advanced age, I can say that I have never trusted God with anything, and then discovered later that he didn't deserve my trust regarding that thing. That's how trustworthy he is. And so, yeah, when I have the opportunity to teach what God says, I'm going to do it with a smile. And when I'm required to insist on what God says, I may grimace, but I'm still going to insist because God's word insists that I insist. And I know that I'm speaking for Brian. When I say that, of course, that phrase "teach these things and insist on them" is is sandwiched between Paul's teaching on slavery and his teaching on false teachers. So, which of those things is he is Paul talking about when he says teach and insist? Well, as Brian pointed out last week, Paul was talking about both of those things when he told Timothy to teach and insist. And as Brian also pointed out last week. Paul was talking about more than simply those two concepts, those few verses, when he told Timothy to teach and insist. Paul was talking about teaching and insisting on everything that he had written to Timothy. All the way back to chapter 1, verse 1, and we say that because at this point in the letter, we're coming to the end of, of this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. Paul's drawing his letter to a close with some carefully timed, carefully worded summary statements. And Paul insists that Timothy insist on these things because, as Brian pointed out last week, the false teachers, listen to me, the false teachers aren't going to insist that you listen to hear, believe, and obey God's word. But instead, they're going to argue with God's word and insist that you argue with God's word too. That's how it works with false teaching. And please understand, as Brian pointed out last week, when they start arguing, they're not arguing with you. That was clear in the passage last week. And they're not arguing with me. They're arguing with what Paul called the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're arguing with Jesus himself. And then Paul adds that they're also arguing with godly teaching. When they start doing that, we have to stand we don't have to stand around wondering what to do it's simple when someone starts arguing with jesus or starts arguing with godly teaching about jesus or other things from god's word take the time to help them if you can but if you can't help them don't argue with them do not be drawn into an argument with them if an argument breaks out just <laughs> Smile and walk away clean, or grimace and walk away clean, as the case may be. But walk away. Walk away from an argument. Be polite and be generous and be gracious, but don't be sucked into their wrong take on God's Word. Don't travel with the false teachers, because if you start traveling with them, you don't get to be surprised when you end up where they are headed. You always end up where you're going, and you always end up where the people you are traveling with are going. If you get into a car that's headed to Lebanon, <laughs> this this is going to be profound for, for, for you, I'm sure, but if you get in a, into a car that's headed to Lebanon, you don't get to be surprised when you end up in Lebanon. It's that simple. Now, I don't hear what I'm not saying, just in case you were confused by my last comment, I'm not saying that all the false teachers live in Lebanon. I, I, they might. I don't know. But I'm not saying that. That's not what I meant to communicate. What I'm trying to say is if, if you talk to someone and discover that they're headed somewhere that you don't want to go, don't travel with them. It's really that simple. Don't get in the car with false teachers. And don't let them lead you astray. And don't let them take you to places that you shouldn't go. And I don't mean to be unkind, but false teaching, misleading teaching is insidious because false teachers will often say that you shouldn't dismiss something without at least trying it. I hear that all the time. You need to sit down and hear this out before you dismiss it. In other words, when it comes to false teaching, the false teachers will tell you that you shouldn't knock it before you try it. Of course, with that philosophy in place, I guess I should also go out this afternoon and try to score some cocaine. I say that because I know that I've heard that cocaine will mess you up, and I've met people whose lives have been ruined by cocaine, but I've never tried cocaine myself. So if you have to try something before you can know that that thing is unhealthy or damaging or dangerous in some way, then I guess the only way to be sure about cocaine is to try it. And this next part is for those people who were sleeping and <laughs> just woke up when I said that I'm going to go out this afternoon and try to score some cocaine. Uh, you don't have to try co- to cocaine to know that it's damaging and unhealthy. All you have to do is talk to the people who've been addicted to cocaine. Talk to the people whose lives have been ruined by cocaine. You don't have to try cocaine to know that it's damaging, unhealthy, and the same thing is true of false teaching. I say that because it ties directly to a tactic that false teachers use. Because once they convince you that this new truth deserves your attention, they'll invite you to come to their church or come to their Bible study and at least give this thing a chance. You know, don't miss this opportunity. They'll tell you that, when you've, that what you've been learning is wrong. And if you come to their church or their Bible study, you're going to receive new enlightenment and it will change your life. That, that promise is always implied. Now, I'll admit that I'm an honest-to-goodness, real fan of things that are going to change my life because I don't want to stagnate in my faith. So when, it comes, when someone comes along and tells me that they've discovered something that will change my life, I'm at least intrigued. I want to keep learning and growing until the day I see Jesus face-to-face. So when someone says, uh, there's this new thing that's going to change your life, I'll admit that I'm interested in that. Of course, I'm also aware That the old truth from God's word is so vast and so powerful that there simply aren't enough hours in the the week to uncover and learn it all. And after more than 50 years of studying God's word, I can tell you that I've only begun to scratch the surface of the truth that the book contains. And if I don't have time to uncover the old stuff, how am I going to find time to invest in discovering something new from God's word? And perhaps more importantly, among all the things out there that are new, and there is a raft of them, among all the things out there that are new, how am I supposed to know the one to which I should give my time? Well, I wonder if you're aware this morning that God's Word has given us at least two very reliable tests to determine if we should invest our time in something new. The first reliable test has us considering and evaluating the teaching that someone is doing. And for the sake of cutting to the chase, whenever someone invites me, I literally do this. Whenever someone invites me to hear and understand something new, I always ask that person to share the gospel with me. That's the first step I take. Can you just tell me how I can come into a relationship with Jesus Christ? Share the gospel with me. And very often, this person who is working so hard to try to get me to try this new thing has no idea how to communicate the gospel to someone else. And that's more than a red flag. That, that is a red light, stop sign, red flag, fence put up, stay off this property. That's what it says to me. If they can't communicate the gospel, they can't explain to me how to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, and very often they'll come back with something that's twisted or perverted in, in, in their gospel because this new thing, well, it changes the old, old story. And I have to be honest with you, when someone doesn't know the gospel or doesn't understand the gospel or can't communicate the gospel or twists or perverts the gospel, I really don't care to learn anything from that person because I don't want to travel with that. I don't want to travel with that person because I never want to get to the place in my life where the gospel is a mystery to me, where the gospel is clouded By some other rationale. In fact, look at what Paul says in Galatians 1, 6 to 9. I hope you can read that at a distance. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, apostles, we, me, Paul, or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Hey, does Paul sound like he's insisting there? Well, yeah. Listen to me. Paul had invested too much of his life and too much of his own well-being in the gospel to ever allow someone to pervert it or twist it in his hearing. So talk with the person who's trying to draw you into this new thing. And if being drawn into this new thing has you being drawn away from the gospel, just say no. There's bumper stickers out there that just say that. So that should be our theme. Just say no. So the first reliable test has us considering and evaluating the teaching that someone's doing. And this next one you're not going to like quite as much. But the second reliable test has us evaluating the person who's offering to teach us. And I'm basing that on Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 and 8, which says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God of you, word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today for and forever. Bef- By the way, before I say anything else, please look at verse 8 there, where we can clearly see that there is no new truth about Jesus. There's no new truth about Jesus says it right there. It's the same yesterday and today and forever. So don't accept anybody's invitation to join them in learning something new about Jesus. But alongside that, what are we supposed to do before we imitate someone else's faith according to that passage? It says we're supposed to consider the way his or her life has turned out. And that's why the author of Hebrews feels so free to tell the Hebrews to consider the lives of their leaders. In other words, there were people who were living right in their midst who were leading and teaching in their church. And the author of Hebrews insists that the people who were being taught consider and evaluate how well the lives of their teaching pastors were turning out. And if the lives of the teachers were turning out well, then their teaching could be trusted. And the people of the church could feel free to believe what those leaders were teaching. In other words... When someone is teaching you what he or she claims to be the truth, then you need to consider how that truth is impacting the life of the one who is teaching it. And if it's not impacting the teacher in a good way, it won't impact you in a good way. If it's not working for him or her, it will not work for you either. This is not rocket science. This points up a particular weakness, a complication in the church in America in the 21st century. We have more access to biblical teaching than any generation before us has ever had. And while that sounds like a good thing, it does put a major hurdle in the way of the truth impacting our lives in the way it should. You see, when Brian or I teach something from God's Word and insist that you listen to, hear, believe, and obey what we teach, you have the very great advantage of being able to look closely at my life and Brian's life. And if I'm teaching on parenting, for example, and you can clearly see that my children are a mess, you have God's permission. No, you have God's instruction to not listen to, hear, believe, and obey what I just taught you about effective parenting. If my parenting has not been effective, then you'll not be an effective parent if you follow or lead or do what I say. That's what we mean when we say that the proof of the pudding is in the eating. The proof, by the way, the proof is not in the pudding. If the proof is in the pudding, you can't see it. You, I don't know, you just eat it. But uh, we said the proof of the pudding is in the eating. You, you may read a recipe for pudding, you know, as you're browsing or, or see it on the, uh, the uh, TikTok or somewhere. Uh, that sounds absolutely amazing. And so you, defi- you decide to follow that recipe and make the pudding that the recipe describes. So you follow the recipe to the letter and then feed it to your family, and they gag their way through dessert. The recipe sounded good. It looked good on paper, but sounding good is not enough because a good recipe that doesn't taste good is not a good recipe. I I even love to cook, and I, I rarely follow a recipe. I just make these concoctions that I can't ever recreate in case it's bad. You know, because then I can assure people, yeah, you'll never have to taste anything like this. Again, it's, it's just gone. But the same thing is true of a person who's teaching the Word in a podcast or in some other electronic format. Their teaching sounds good, but you've never met this pro- person, and you probably never will. You know, we spend a lot of time comparing teachers based on how they sound, but how a teacher sounds is unimportant to com- compared to how the teacher lives. Never trust a teacher who doesn't line up, whose life does not line up with what he or she says. Never trust a teacher whose life does not line up with what he or she says. And that's where the problem comes in. When you're listening to someone expound over the Internet, what they say may sound good, but you have no way of knowing how his or her life is being impacted by what he or she is teaching you. You don't know. And since you can't see the evidence of the truth in his or her life, you can't really be sure that what they're teaching is actually true. Now, again, don't hear what I'm not saying. You may not be able to observe the life of the person who's teaching online, but that by itself doesn't mean that you, you should stop listening to them. I'm not asking you to evaluate. I'm, asking you, I'm saying that if you can't evaluate the life of the teacher, then you can't evaluate the, the truth of the thing that that person is teaching, um, you may not meet them, but in cases like that, the truth about the church at Berea kicks in. in Acts 17:11. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Look what look what it says there. They examined the scriptures when they had the time to examine the scriptures. Is that what? No, that no, that's not what it's. Uh, Actually, what it says is they examine the scriptures the first Thursday of every month, right? What does it say? They examine the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was teaching was true. I love these guys. I mean, oh my goodness, if our church was full of people like this, Brian and I would never ever be able to get away with anything any more than Paul would have been able to as he stood before them. They examine the scriptures every day. So if you're invited by someone to join them in learning something new that's going to change your life, take the time to check them out on the gospel just by way of reviewing the review and take the time to consider whether their lives are worth imitating. And if their lives line up uh, with the gospel and their lives and their faith are truly worth imitating, it might be worth taking the time to listen to what they have to say, to learn what they want you to learn. However, whenever you're listening to anyone teach, anyone teach, and this includes me, it includes Brian, it includes anybody that you may be listening to online, it is essential that you take the time to search the scriptures every day to make sure that what I am teaching, what Brian is teaching, what that guy online whose face you wouldn't recognize if you saw it, what that guy online is teaching because... Uh, Make sure that what they're teaching lines up, because if it lines up with God's Word, then their teaching is true. That's what makes it true, if it lines up with God's Word. The fact that it's a good idea doesn't make it true. Lots of good ideas out there that aren't true ideas. And now, after that 20-minute review, I have 15 minutes left to unpack the passage for today, and I intend to have you out of here before 1215 11.15, 11.15, I, I was just... You'll be out before 12.15, I can assure you of that. Let's begin unpacking the passage by reading it together. Please stand if you're able and, and read aloud with me again, if you're able, as we unpack First Timothy 6, 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing... We will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Thanks. You can, as we sit down, be thankful that God reveals His truth in His Word. The story that I I plan to tell you from God's Word this morning is is a little bit of a stretch. It is a story from God's Word, unlike the one that I told a couple of weeks ago. It is a story from God's Word, but it's not a story about something that happened. Instead, it's a story about something that Jesus said one day when He was teaching the people. On that particular day, Jesus was actually teaching Thousands of people, that's what the scripture says, thousands of people, and they were pressing in on one another as they hung on Jesus' every word. At that time, Jesus was in Jerusalem, and the scripture says that once Jesus went outside, he'd been inside, and once he went outside and had begun to engage the crowds, the Pharisees and all the teachers of the law, quote, began to fiercely oppose him and to besiege him with questions. And they were doing that because they were, again, quoting, waiting to catch him in something that he might say. So please put on your robes and tie on your sandals and worm your way through the crowd so that you can get to the place where you can hear Jesus and ignore the Pharisees. And with that fierce background, this is the story from God's Word, from the teaching of Jesus in Luke. Oop, from the teaching of Jesus in Luke chapter. 12. Jesus was surrounded by people. And many of them were opposing him. But Jesus found the means to ignore them and ignore the opposition as he spoke directly to his followers. And this is what he said. So I tell you, don't worry about your life and what you will eat. And and don't worry about your body and what you will wear. Because I'm telling you, life is, is more than simply what you will eat. And the body is more than just what you'll wear. In fact, Jesus went on, think about the birds that are all around us. They, they don't plant or harvest. They have no storeroom. They have no barns. And, and yet God feeds them. And while you're thinking about that, think about this. How much more are you worth than a bird? Jesus then said, hey, some of you are worried about when you're going to die. So let me ask you this. Which one of you can add even a single hour to your life by worrying about when you'll die? And as you think about that, think about this. If you can't do that very simple thing by worrying, then what's the point of worrying about anything else? Jesus continued. Think for a moment about how the wildflowers grow. They're not industrious, and they don't spin their own clothes, but I'll tell you what. Even King Solomon in all of his splendor was not dressed like one of these wildflowers. So once again, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field that today is and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And what's more, I'm telling you not to set your hearts on or occupy your mind with what you will eat or drink. Most certainly, don't worry about it. I say that because the people who don't trust God are after those things, but your Father knows that you need them. So stop worrying about and and running after things here, and instead seek God's kingdom, and you can be sure that all those other things will be given to you. And then Jesus turned his attention to that small group of his followers that was gathered closest in, and he said, Do not be afraid, little flock. For it truly pleases your Father to give you the kingdom. So go ahead, sell your possessions and give to the poor because in doing that you will provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never disappoint you because unlike down here, no thief can ever break in and steal it and no no moth or other pest will ever destroy it. And then Jesus concluded by saying, I'm telling you to store up treasure in heaven instead of down here because where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And that's the story from God's Word. Now, earlier when we read the passage together this morning, you may have noticed that it began with a a but. And, and I don't want to say that it's a big but, because that would be beneath me to say something like that from the pulpit, but i got to say that it really is a pretty big but. Uh, and, and I'm not going to do a rap song right now, but I do want us to understand why. <laughs> I do want us to understand why Paul wanted us to, to realize uh, why Paul started that, this passage with the word but, this one that we're unpacking now. You see, Paul has been talking to us about a potential motivation that some people might have for being godly. In fact, he's been talking to us about the false teachers. And once again, as Brian pointed out last week, the false teachers were people who disagreed or misunderstood, not misunderstood, they misunderstood God's Word. They misunderstood what Jesus and the apostles taught. The false teachers were also very proud people, or as Brian said last week, one translation says that they were conceited idiots. I don't understand how that works. But false teachers don't know what they're talking about. That's the long and short of it. They don't know what they're talking about, but that doesn't stop them from trying to get other people to listen to them and to believe the same thing. Besides that, false teachers create and spread division among God's people as they willfully and intentionally refuse the truth and try to get other Jesus followers to go along with them. In other words, the false teachers are lost, but they're making record time. And that's why you might be inclined to travel with them. They're they're having a ball as they go through this new thing that isn't true, but, I don't know, it seems to be a lot of fun. There's a lot of controversy. I love a controversy, so let's just go and get this. And then right at the end of verse 5 last week, Paul pointed out that one of the reasons that the false teachers try to get us to go along with them is because they think that godliness is a means to financial gain. And honestly, you can make a lot more money teaching what's false than you can teaching what's true. I promise you that. Because some people who teach don't feel the need to spend hours studying God's Word to make sure that they are accurately representing God and His Word when they stand before people before God's people, and whenever someone adopts that attitude, then he or she is going to make a maximum of money while working a minimum of hours. That's just the nature of it. There are pastors and people in teaching ministries who make more than $100,000 a year working, and, and they do that working very few hours every week because they don't take the time to study God's Word before they teach it. And when you do the math, that amounts to hundreds of dollars an hour. Now, teaching God's Word without studying God's Word doesn't make someone a false teacher. Please understand that. But it does raise a question as to why they've taken on a teaching ministry in the first place. Was it because they saw a teaching ministry as a, as a means to make a good living? If that was the reason, then those people, those are the people who are most prone To teach things that people want to hear instead of teaching people what they need to hear. And if the people want to hear lies that soothe them instead of truth that challenges them, that makes the transition to false teaching even easier. Because when a person who doesn't care too much about speaking the truth ministers to a group of people who don't care too much about hearing the truth, the door to false teaching is thrown wide open in that church ministry. So if I were to teach here without caring too much about understanding the truth, before I teach, it would be easy to make a lot of money in a very short time. And as Paul put it, that might prompt me to think that godliness is a means to financial gain. So Paul's been talking about people who are motivated to be godly, and in the case of the false teachers, their motivation for being godly is in the money that they can make from being godly. And those people will more constantly put on the facade of godliness. They'll try to look godly as, as their hunger for money grows. And this is where that incredibly big but comes into play. Some people think that godliness is a means to financial gain, but Paul has a better idea. Instead of constantly being forced to pretend that you're godly for the sake of getting more money, you can instead choose to live a godly life by being content with what God has already provided for you. That's because contentment is the antidote to worry. It's like Jesus said in the story, worrying won't help you to add a single hour to your life. We we sometimes say, well, I've been worrying myself to death over this. And the truth is, worrying will never lengthen your life, but it can shorten your life. We all know that. So if you've been thinking of, of godliness as a means to financial gain, just stop it, just stop. Instead, understand that godliness when combined with contentment already is great gain. You may not drive a Bentley or or live in a mansion, but if you have godliness mingled with contentment in your life, you are incredibly rich. And you may not realize this, but there's another passage in the New Testament where Paul actually shares with us the secret to contentment. I'm going to tell you this, but you can't tell anybody else. Because it's a secret, okay? And Paul doesn't say, in the book that we're going to look at, he didn't say, tell everybody this. It's a secret. But I love this. Would you like to know what the secret to contentment actually is? Well, look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. What's the secret? I can do all this through him who strengthens me. Listen, please don't af- ever ask me to play a trombone solo during the message because I can't play the trombone. I know that's a small technicality, but I don't know how to play the trombone, so I'm not going to play a trombone solo. I'm not going to trust God to make me able to play the trombone because you want me to. But you can ask me to be content no matter what my fit- financial situation is. Why? Because I can do that through him who gives me strength. That's the secret. Well, it used to be a secret. and Now we've just blurted it right out. When When I seek godliness and then choose to allow God to strengthen me and empower me to mingle godliness with contentment in my life, that bears fruit in my life right here in the nasty now and now. But it also bears fruit in the sweet by and by because God has planned a significant return on my investment in godliness. So I can give all my time to work trying to get rich down here, but that will only last as long as I'm here because you can't take it with you. Or I can give my time to being content with godliness and be rich here and in the life to come. Paul's about to more or less quote something that Job said after that terrible tragedy and loss in chapter 1 of Job. Naked, Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job was financially strapped and devastated when he said those words. But those words reflect immense spiritual wealth. And while you're thinking about that, um, look at how Paul phrased it in verses six and seven. But godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. And having said that, I'm, I'm still inclined to want a definition and, and maybe an example of contentment, so let's go there. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines content as satisfied. In other words, contentment is satisfaction. And how about an example of, of contentment? Well, it's right there in verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Now, I know that now, you, you know, I, I don't end up own a Bentley or, or a mansion, but so far today, <laughs> I've, I've had food and clothing all day. Uh, it's, been a, it's been a remarkable journey. So far today, I've had food and clothing all day. Now, if you want to give me a, a Bentley or, or a mansion, I'll certainly accept either one of those as long as you pay the taxes on them. But even if you don't give me a Bentley or a mansion, I can tell you, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm good. I would accept a Bentley or a mansion, but even if I don't get either of those, I'm satisfied having food and clothing all day, every day. And if I can be satisfied with food and clothing, that means that I'm content. And if I can mingle my contentment with godliness, then I'm rich, even if I don't own a Bentley or a mansion. So what about those people who have tried but can't be content with just food and clothing? Now, I'm sure they're they're out there. There may be some of you here today saying, yeah, tried that, doesn't work. Well, let's say, first of all, that there's nothing wrong with being rich. I've got to say that. And since there's nothing wrong with being rich, that means there's nothing wrong with getting rich. So the problem with wealth doesn't lie in being or getting rich. It lies with wanting to be rich. And that's because, if you think about it, wanting is the opposite of contentment. Think about the question and answer. Uh, Do you want some dessert? And you might say, no, Thank you. I don't want any dessert because I'm satisfied. I'm content with what I've already eaten. So there's nothing wrong with being or getting rich just just so long as you can mingle those two with contentment. I don't want you to feel guilty this morning if you are wealthy, but I do want you to be content if you're wealthy. It seems to be a common theme that runs through the lives of many wealthy people, And that theme comes to light when you ask them if they have enough money. John D. Rockefeller, the founder of Standard Oil, uh, was once asked, uh, he he was the first billionaire, by the way, in the United States, and at one time he was the richest man on earth. He was asked by a reporter one day, how much money is enough money? He had plenty, but how much money is enough money? And John D. Rockefeller famously answered, just a little more. Just a little more. He was the richest man on earth, but because he didn't mingle his wealth with contentment, you could be wealthier than he was. I don't know if you've seen the movie Fiddler on the Roof. I reference this often. You should watch it sometime. But I'd like to show you a short clip where an older man named Devya, He's the dad in the story, is having a conversation with a young man named Perchik. Devia has asked his older daughter, Seidel, to marry an older, wealthy man so that she can be sure that she will be taken care of financially for the rest of her life. And Perchik is challenging that notion. You're going to have to watch fast because the clip is short. Are you ready? Ingrange! It's no reason to marry. Money's the world's curse. May the Lord smite me with it. And may I never recover. World's curse. My title knows. I mean only her welfare. Am I right, title? Yes, Papa. There, you see? I see. <laughs> I love it. Pritchik, uh says to, to Tevia to the older man, Money is the world's curse. Uh, he's Jewish, but he's also a communist, and that's why he believes that. He tells the old man money is the world's curse. And how did Tevye reply to the fact that money is the world's curse? May the Lord smite me with it, and may I never recover. You know, it, we all have this idea about what money actually is. I know that the young man is a communist, but he's onto something when he talks about money being a curse. Look at what Paul says in verse Nine, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Let me say it again. There's nothing wrong with being rich and there's nothing wrong with getting rich, but if you find yourself wanting to be rich, you should know that there are inherent dangers in that. If you want to be rich, your pursuit of wealth will at some point force you to face temptations. According to Paul, and I know this by experience, it'll force you to face temptation that you may not be able to avoid. You also run the risk of falling into a trap that's that's baited with foolish and harmful desires that could ultimately destroy and ruin you and your family. So you're faced with a choice today. You can want to be godly and learn the secret of how to mingle being content with your godliness, Or you can keep running the rat race. But I should warn you about something. The rat race is over. The rats have won. There's one more thing that I want you to see, and then we'll be done for this morning. Look at verse 10. And help me out again by checking my accuracy as I read. Would you do that? You're always so good about that. Follow along as I read. And Verse 10 says, For money is the root of all evil. Some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith, and pierce themselves with many griefs. Is that what verse 10 says? No, thank you. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Are you catching the tone that Paul is projecting? He's not against money. He's against an eagerness for money. He's against a wanting for money. Money is not the root of all evil, but the love of money, the eagerness for money is the root of all kinds of evil. Uh, The love of money is a root from which all kinds of evil things grow up to and including walking away from what you believe and even walking away from the faith just so you can be rich. It has happened before. It is a consistent theme. If you are poor, but you have your faith, Uh, and and your godliness and contentment still intact, you're incredibly wealthy. But if you're wealthy and you've lost your faith, your godliness or your contentment, then you're living in poverty. So at the end of the day, we have a choice. We can love contentment and godliness, and God will call us rich. Or we can love money and be poor even though the world would call us rich. So that makes me want to ask, what does that make you want to do? As you ponder that question, let me read the passage so that I can have you out of here before 12.15. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Will you stand with me in the presence? Father and our God, we talked about some things that uh, are close to people's hearts. I know that Anytime I talk about children or money, I run the risk of offending people. And and God, I didn't mean to do that this morning. You know the intention, but we also have to teach and insist what you have taught and insisted on. Thank you for your word and thank you for the insight that it gives us that, that if we make money our pursuit in life, there's danger and ruin and destruction ahead of us. But if we make Christ our pursuit if we pursue him then we leave we leave what we leave behind us is our our ministry in other people's lives god please teach us to be focused on you teach us to be content with what we have and god if you want to give us a million billion dollars we'll accept it with a glad heart but we're not going to chase after it instead we're going to chase after you thank you for the truth for the sake of your goodness for the sake of your glory we pray that you'd help us to understand and live out these things. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen and amen. So we're going out there, and now we're all going to try to make a hundred, a $1 million, $1 billion dollars, right? This, no, we're not. If you've been pursuing money, stop it. Pursue Christ instead and let God's blessing flow into your life. And in the meantime, be content, because godliness with contentment is great gain. You understand the play? We're heading out into the... Ready? Aha, there you go.